Our text today is going to be Titus chapter 3, and we'll be looking at verses 1 and 2. This is the Word of God. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Pray with me, friends. Lord, your word is super good. You're holy, you're perfect, and you communicate who you are and what you want in this holy word. So I pray that today we will hear it and we'll be submitted to it um, and changed by the gospel and by your commands for how to live because of the gospel. And we pray that all in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You can be seated. Living as a Christian in a fallen world can be a hard job. Have you noticed? There's a lot of us who have lived through some years when the church was socially popular. Does anybody remember those days, by the way, when it was a good thing to go to church? <laughs> yeah, you don't. <laughs> but, you know, younger years, that was sort of the polite, popular, appropriate thing to do. But in 21st century America... We are feeling more and more like strangers in a strange land. Y'all know, y'all know I grew up sort of redneck and southern, right? Some of you know this, some of you don't. But our little church sang southern gospel hymns. Now let me say to you right now, that style both musically and theologically leaves something to be desired in my humble opinion. I don't, any of y'all southern gospel fans? A couple, I heard a giggle. Is that, is that a yes or what is that? Anyway, but let me tell you something. There's one thing that those old hymn writers did get right. They wrote songs of their longing for heaven. Many a song would describe the Christian life as a pilgrimage. We were strangers in a strange land. This world is not our home. We're just a passing through. And the true hope for safety and comfort in those songs was not to be found in gaining social acceptance. Instead, hope was firmly set on the heaven to come, on the return of the Savior, on the resurrection of all of those who are in Christ, and on spending eternity in glory with our Lord. Christians, as we live in the world but not of the world, figuring out how to respond to the world, it's not as easy as you might think. What do you do when the world turns against you? What do you do when the government tries to strip you of God-given rights? What do you do when being a Christian is again a source of derision in society instead of being a badge of respectability? When Paul wrote to Titus, he was writing to help him teach Christians how to live in a hard world. The Isle of Crete was not necessarily an easy place to live. The dominion of the Roman Empire was not particularly welcoming to Christians. Churches needed godly elders to shepherd them as dangerous false teachers threatened the stability of the believers. Churches needed instruction on how to, how to function as Christians in the home. And, and Paul wanted Titus to keep the gospel message of Jesus front and center. Last week, we saw Paul remind us of the gospel message in chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. 
And central there is the fact that the grace of God has appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. All people everywhere can be saved by God's grace if they'll respond to Jesus in faith and repentance. All of us are sinners. All of us need the mercy of God. None of us can ever be good enough to impress God or earn our way to heaven. But God will forgive anybody who believes in Jesus and turns from his sin or her sin to ask Jesus for mercy. Let me tell you, even before we talk about living in a hard world as Christians, let me invite you. Do you need the forgiveness of God? Do you need salvation? Do you want heaven forever? Believe that Jesus is God in the flesh who lived a perfect human life. Believe that Jesus died to pay the price for your sins as a willing sacrifice. Believe that Jesus rose from the grave and he reigns on the throne of heaven even today. Turn away from being the center, the boss of your own life, and ask Jesus to forgive you and be the Lord over your life. He will save your soul. But once we're saved, Jesus is going to call on us to live for his glory. Back in chapter 2, we saw that Jesus has standards for how we live in our homes. Today, we're going to see a few ways Christians are to live in the world. And as we study, we're going to find two key points that are super relevant for the hard world in which we live right here and right now. Neither of the points I'm going to give you today will save your soul. What I just told you about Jesus will save your soul. But both of these points are going to be your right response to being saved by Jesus. So you ready? Point number one, rightly submit to authority. Rightly submit to authority. Look at Titus 3.1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. So Paul shifts gears here. He's back to instructing us. And he gives some pretty simple instruction, I would say. There's no qualifier here. There's no exception listed here. He just tells Titus, remind the people to be submissive to rulers and authorities and to be obedient. Y'all, there are times in history when that little two phrases of a verse would be a whole lot easier to preach than it is today. Those words aren't complicated after all, right? The concepts aren't difficult. But we're not living in a time when it's easy to hear those words. In fact, I think one of the most dangerous things that I could do, one of the most dangerous things that a preacher could do handling this passage is to fail to help you to see more than is here. I'm not saying more than what scripture says but i want to show you more than is in this passage alone because what did we learn this morning is a key principle let scripture interpret scripture today in america we live in a world in which christians are deeply divided over the issue of submission to the government have you heard this before are you familiar with this concept 
You know, once the government began to issue for us mandates on group meeting sizes and masks and vaccinations and many Christians in America found themselves struggling to know how it is we can do what we believe is right while at the same time obeying passages like this one. Normally I would handle this passage in three, four minutes. But I want to take time today to make sure we understand what it looks like to rightly submit to governmental authority. First, let's look at the verse. What are we told? Submit, be obedient. Be submissive to rulers and authorities. The concept here is not complicated. The command is that Titus is to remind the Christians on Crete that they are to get under the authority of the government of Crete and to follow the government's instructions. That's what the verse says. And if this were the only place in Scripture with which we deal with the call for Christians to respond to government, it'd be pretty black and white. But this is not the only passage in the New Testament speaking to a Christian's response to authority. This is a very short, very simple verse. Paul tells us what the default position should be for a believer. We're going to have to look at other more extensive, more detailed passages if we want to get a fuller understanding of what the Word of God says to us about authority. But now, before we turn anywhere else, and we will turn somewhere else, I want to say what I said one more time. The default position for a Christian when it comes to government is humble submission. As much as we are able, we are to do what we can to live peaceful and quiet lives in the land in which the Lord has planted us. Paul wanted the Christians on Crete to know it's not their job on Crete to try to overthrow the government. It's not their place to become a thorn in the flesh of their leaders. Paul wants Christians to have a reputation for being quiet and peaceable and prayerful people who kindly go about our business from day to day. And I would suggest to you that that is in fact the default setting God wants for you and me. The church is supposed to be known for lifting Jesus high and for loving one another far more than we should be known for being difficult for governmental leaders. So, if your default setting is one of making waves, by the way, is that some of you? Any of you have the default setting to make waves? If any of you are the kind of person who wants to be so anarchist as to try to bring down the government, if you're the kind of person that wishes to foment rebellion, you should be concerned that you may in fact be going against the very word of God. I'm not going to say to you that there's never a time for Christians to move in such a way that we refuse to obey the government, but, and this is the biblical point, that should not be your first instinct. I'm not suggesting here, if you're a Christian living in a democracy, maybe you could work to try to get a better candidate elected to office. I'm for it. What I'm saying is we do not take part in trying to tear down the whole system. By the way, 
even though I'm not going to spend time on it today, that would address some of the critical theory movements of today that wish to absolutely dismantle our system. That is not the setting, the default setting for Christians. Now, let's look quickly at three important passages that will shine a little more light on the issue of a Christian's response to government. We're going to go to Romans chapter 13, because Anthony said to. We'll go to Acts chapter 4 and chapter 5, and we'll go to Matthew chapter 22, because Russ said to. You have to have been in Sunday school for this to work, by the way. We could go other places. These three passages are going to be a really big help, though. So if you want to turn, we'll put them up on the screens, too, because the screens are working, right? Okay. You can watch the screen. You can turn to Romans 13. Either way. If you've been paying any attention to the Christian community over the past year and a half, you will have heard Romans 13 brought out. Have you guys heard somebody pointing to Romans chapter 13 in the past year and a half? Yeah. In many ways, Romans 13 expands what I just said to you from Titus 3.1. The default position of a Christian should be to humbly submit to the governmental leaders above us. But we want to be careful not to let the passage say more to us than it actually says. Romans 13 verses 1 and 2 say, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. The Word of God makes it clear that God has actually instituted civil government as a good thing for society. It's a common grace. It's a kindness that when handled properly, it blesses followers of God and the lost alike. Thus, Christians, and here we're talking to the Christians in Rome in this passage, Christians are not to decide that we will do away with government. Roman Christians are not supposed to be involved in revolts against Rome without knowing that they are also opposing the Lord who established the civil government to begin with. But then look at verses 3 and 4. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So now we see what the government is for. In simplest terms, the government is there to punish people who do bad things so that the good can live peaceable lives. The role of the government is to reward and approve of good things and to rightly judge and dissuade evil conduct. What's that look like? The government bears the sword 
actually wielding the right of the death penalty so as to prevent society from becoming a murderous mob. That's government's job. You can decide how well it's doing. The government is to punish thieves. The government is to punish those who do violence. The government is to punish those who use false business practices to take advantage of, to cheat, to steal, to exploit others. That is what government is supposed to do. Then verses 5 to 7 says, Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities of the ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Please note that. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Here, notice there at the end, different people are owed different things. We don't pay all things to all people. We don't submit in the same way to all people. Instead, the Christian who is faithful is faithful to respond rightly to his or her government based on what is properly owed. So as I said, the passage in Romans 13 is very similar to what we saw in Titus 3. It must be the default position of Christians to be subject to our governmental leaders. However, we also see in Romans 13 that there are some clear purposes that the government has been given by God to fulfill. Government is about protecting people, punishing evildoers, Approving of and applauding good things. The government's whole point is to not get in the way of doing good. The question is, given Romans 13, 1 to 7, Titus 3, verse 1, are there any times in which a Christian might, without dishonoring God, choose not to obey the government? Is there a possibility that could arise that a Christian, in fact, must not obey the law of the land. Let me invite you to turn to Acts chapter 4, which I was surprised nobody sent me to in Sunday school. Here we're going to watch an ongoing situation between the apostles and the Jewish Sanhedrin, which is the rightly empowered governmental authority at the temple. The disciples are preaching Jesus. The government did not want them to. Look at verse, chapter 4, Acts 4, 18 to 20. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. Simple. The authorities tell Peter and the apostles, don't preach Jesus. And by the way, if all we had is Titus 3.1, maybe Romans 13, but definitely Titus 3.1, if all we had is that, you might come to the conclusion that the apostles have to sadly shrug and stop the sermons. 
But here with absolute clarity, Peter and John make it known that in that situation, they cannot obey the command of the authority. Now flip over to chapter 5, Acts 5, 27 to 29. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in, his, in this name. Yet here you fill Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. It's a little bit later, and the apostles find themselves before the court. And again they've been preaching, and again the authorities tell them they've got to stop. And Peter and the apostles are again quite clear, in this instance, the command of the governing authority is in direct opposition to a command from God. God told the church, go make disciples. God says, I've got all the authority, go make disciples. And the apostles had to choose to obey God rather than obey even their government. So we know this, our default position is that we obey the government when we can. But if an authority over us commands us not to obey a command of God, we must obey God above that human authority. If a government tells us not to worship, not to fellowship, not to evangelize, we must not obey. We must keep on following Scripture. If a government tells us to do a thing God forbids, we must refuse that order. By the way, you can, you can refuse very respectfully, and you should, but you can't obey commands that violate the Word of God. And for many Christians, those two scriptures, Romans 13, Acts 4 and 5, those have been in play over the past year and a half. I think most in the church know we're supposed to obey the law. And I think most in the church know that we disobey when the government commands a clear violation of scripture. But it gets hard when you're not exactly sure whether that's clearly a violation of Scripture or not when the government commands something, isn't it? I think there's a nuance that many haven't considered, but it's vital in our present situation. Turn to Matthew 22. Matthew 22. Here we're going to watch an encounter between Jesus and the religious leaders over governmental authority. The Pharisees want to force Jesus either to tell the people they don't have to pay taxes, which will get him in trouble with the government, or that they must pay taxes to the hated Romans, thus lowering his popularity ratings among many of his followers. Get the zealots mad at him. Matthew twenty-two fifteen to 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, by the way, that's the government, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true 
and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. You hear them buttering him up right there? Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius, and Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled. And they left him and went away. You guys probably know this event pretty well. And I simply want to point out something significant in the Savior's answer that helps us as we think about the issue of governmental authority. We are to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And this indicates that there are some issues in the sphere of governmental authority over which the government has the right to legislate. At the same time, there are other areas in our lives over which the government does not, in fact, have any authority to legislate. Some things are Caesar's. All things are God's. The most helpful way that I've heard this talked about today is with this, a picture of what we call spheres of authority. Draw some little circles on your papers, right? And, and inside those self-contained circles are areas of life and they have different authorities over them. So, when it comes to arresting violent criminals and bringing about their execution, that is the government's sphere of authority. If you or I decide we're going to start arresting and punishing people on our own, we're going to be out of line. So Ben, don't do it. Similarly, I'm trying to make sure that I talked to both of you because your wives pointed out last week that I didn't, by the way. God has made, similarly to that last illustration, the raising of children the sphere of authority for parents, not the government. Sure, the government has the right to arrest a parent who's physically abusing their child, violating the law. The government has zero right to tell any parent how their children must be brought up regarding their moral and religious values. The government does not have the authority to tell parents how to educate their sons and daughters. The government does not have the authority to tell a parent what they have to tell their children about issues of gender or sexuality. The government does not have the right to legislate how often a married couple goes on a date or how they express love to one another. Think of, think of China's draconian one-child policy that was in effect for decades before it was modified back in 2015. You guys remember this? The Communist Party told couples that they were only allowed to have one baby per couple. 
And the government would then force unwanted abortions. They would murder unborn children if ladies were discovered pregnant with a second child or they would do something crushing to the family. This was evil. But listen to me here, okay? It's not only evil because of the abortions and the infanticides, though those are evil. Christians always oppose abortion. But the policy was evil also because the government was attempting to exercise authority in a sphere over which the government has no right to wield authority. This wasn't the government punishing the evil and approving the good. It was the government attempting to reach outside of its sphere of authority to try to control the sphere of authority of the family. We are to render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and we are to submit to government when it is governing within its proper God-given sphere of authority. But when the government attempts to command us in spheres of authority that are not rightly the government's, we have the right and the responsibility to at least consider carefully whether we will obey. Thus, when the government says, for safety purposes, the church can't have everybody gathered together indoors, or that everyone who is in the gathering has to be vaccinated or masked or something else, we are in a unique place. Yes, on the one hand, we want to be obedient, we want to be polite. Yes, there are certain restrictions that the government gives that we willingly obey. We, you know what? We keep to fire codes. I'm pro-fire code. At the same time, the Word of God has commanded us to gather. And that command from God, guys, is of tremendous spiritual importance. Don't neglect the gathering. The word has commanded us to fellowship. Now I'm going to tell you that for me, this is not a factor, but for some of you, seeing other people's faces matters in fellowship. I don't care if I see your faces, but other people do. So as we consider the command of officials, the governor, the command of God, as we consider the sphere of authority, we as a church might in fact find ourselves making choices not in line with governmental orders. Let me also say, as you consider how should a church respond to the laws, the rules, the mandates, different churches may come to different conclusions as to how best to respond. You all understand that different churches think and function slightly differently, right? PRC probably wouldn't decorate like this. We're different, right? It's all right. I'm so grateful to God we get to meet here. I'm just tickled pink to be here. But we're different. We're different than Summit. Summit's different than us on purpose. It's okay. We can love them. They can love us, and it's awesome. 
Different churches may come to different conclusions as to how best to respond. One church may do precisely the opposite of what another church does when it comes to the government saying, this is what we wish for you to do. Even if the government's reaching outside of its sphere of authority, churches will respond differently. Does that mean that one is right while the other is dead wrong? The answer is not necessarily. I want to give the counsel on this from one church to another that's similar to the counsel that Paul gave when it comes to issues like certain foods or holy days. Romans 14, verses 1 to 5, Paul writes, As for the one who's weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything. How many of you are pro eat anything? <laughs> While... I don't want to be judgmental here, but it says the weak person eats only vegetables. <laughs> I'm sorry, that got me. I, I wasn't. <laughs> God bless you, vegetarians. I don't understand you, but we love you. Let not one that eats despise the one who abstains, meat eaters. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one, look at this text. This is really important, Christians, when it comes to secondary issues. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Do you hear the room for Christians to actually think differently about certain topics? Not clear biblical commands, mind you, but questions of conscience. Let's be very gracious with other believers who thoughtfully consider issues of obedience to authorities and maybe come to a different decision than us. Let's be fully convinced in our own minds, but let's also be willing to know that other believers answer to the Lord as their master, not to us. And praise God, it's the Lord who will make them stand on the day of judgment just as the Lord will uphold you and me on that same day. I want to wrap up verse 1 real quick here. Paul tells Titus to teach the people to be ready for every good work. So it's not just Paul telling us obey the law, but to do good. And in that context, Paul's telling us to be ready to be good citizens, not just passively, but actively. Christians should be a solid, visible, caring part of their local community. Truth is, Christian... One reason you submit to authorities is so that you're going to be less hindered in your desire to do the good works that honor the Lord as a believer. Drive the speed limit so that, yeah, you don't hurt people, but also drive the speed limit so you don't get pulled over, so that you're not fined, so that you're not prevented from being a kind and giving person. Pay your taxes so you stay out of jail, so the government can't say that Christians just oppose the law all the time. We want to make it as simple as possible for ourselves to live the lives to which God has called us. 
And part of being a faithful believer is being a person who looks for ways to do good things because we know God has prepared good works for us even before we were ever born. Look at Ephesians 2, verse 10. We'll put it up here. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So live in right submission to authority. I think it through. It's a little more complicated than the few words in Titus 3.1 might lead you to understand. Live peaceably so that you're most free to do the good works that Christ has prepared for you. And know that some of those good works are going to include how you treat others in the world around us. Let's look at point number two. Live graciously toward others. Can you guys handle one more point? Is that okay? I'm just checking. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2, though verse 2 is our point. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Now look at this. To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. So Paul moves here from how we respond to authorities to how we treat all the people in general out there. Specifically, here, how you talk, how you speak to and about each other, how you speak to and about the world out there, that's what's in view. Have you ever noticed you can often make a pretty good guess as to what kind of person somebody is by the way that he uses his mouth? You walk into a restaurant, a cafe, Starbucks, whatever, and you hear some guy spouting out foul language, telling dirty jokes, Complaining about politics, complaining about service. What do you think about that guy? I'm going to guess most likely you don't want that guy to be your pastor or your deacon. You would know by the way that he speaks what's in his heart. Because Luke 6.45 says from Jesus, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. What does your mouth say about you? If people overheard your conversations, if people overheard your dinner conversations, what would they know about you? If people read not just your words, but the tone and the attitude you have when you write stuff on social media, what would it say about you? God commands you, again, Titus 3.2, speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle, show perfect courtesy toward all. The call to speak evil of no one is the call not to malign, not to blaspheme others. We do not say evil, ugly, false things about other people. Honestly, don't say evil, ugly, true things. We avoid quarreling when we can. We listen to me for just a second. This is important, especially for you who do social media. There is nothing godly about loving to argue. Even when we've got to say hard things to others, about others, about things that are true, we should be tempering our speech so that it is, gen it is as gentle and as courteous as we can possibly speak it. 
God commands that we watch our speech. It's wrong to sit around and put other people down. It's wrong to quarrel. It's wrong to take cheap shots. It's wrong to speak with harshness to or about others. Even if you don't like their political views, it is still wrong for you to be discourteous. It is wrong to be less than courteous. It is a sin to be crude. And when you do those things, you give the local church and you give the Savior a bad name in the eyes of a watching world. Watch your mouths. The world's watching us. They're not going to give us a lot of leeway, so let's be sure that while we always, always, always tell the truth, we treat others graciously, speaking with truth, gentleness, kindness, courtesy. By the way, side point, because I've been talking long enough now that things are coming out of my head. There are some popular phrases that are kind of funny that Christians have joined with the world in saying as they mock people in public. If you're not being kind and courteous, you might want to go back and revisit this verse before you start chanting slogans together. Is that fair enough? If we continued on in this passage, by the way, we're going to find out that it's sandwiched between two powerful gospel passages. The gospel's beautifully portrayed in chapter 2, verses 11 to 15, and it's going to happen again from verses 3 to 8 of chapter 3. Why does Paul do that? The point, I think, is to make sure that as Titus reminds the Christians on Crete to live under authority, to live ready for good works, to live with sweetness of speech, to live with kindness towards others, the good news of Jesus has got to be at the center of how we think. The reason we obey the government is because God has established government in general for the good of society. And we obey the government because we want to be free to live lives that point other people toward Jesus. And we speak with gentleness and we speak with respect even when we have to say hard things because we want the world to know that we want to see them saved. Listen to me, friends. This is really important. The lost are not our enemies. The lost are our mission field. We want people, even harsh people, even mean-spirited people to turn from their sins and trust in Jesus and find life in his shed blood and resurrection. Christians rightly submit to authority, live graciously toward others, do it for the glory of Christ. And if you're here and you don't yet know Jesus, I urge you, come to Jesus, find life in his name, and find joy in living to his glory. Let's pray together. Father, your word is good. We thank you for it. I think your word's been convicting here today. I think your word has taught us here today. I would pray, Lord, that you'll apply your word, bring your word to bear in our lives. Whatever that requires, where we need to repent, help us repent. Where we need to learn to follow you more faithfully, help us learn to follow you more faithfully. Take phrases and catchy slogans out of our mouths that are discourteous. 
Help us to speak truth. Help us to be bold. Help us to be faithful. That's what we ask in Jesus' holy name. Amen.